strongly invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. We've hit pause on our study of Romans till after the new year because we're spending this Advent season digging into the book of Isaiah. Specifically, what does Isaiah, over 700 years before the coming of Christ, what does he have to say about Jesus and about the incarnation? You know, in a lot of ways, Isaiah is to the Old Testament what Romans is to the New Testament. Um, I encourage you to spend some time over this Advent season, season digging into the book of Isaiah. I don't know if you know this, but Isaiah is the most quoted prophet in the entire New Testament. Um, his writing is magisterial. It is supreme. It is glorious. I mean, it's just an amazing piece of literature. He loves to use metaphors. And in our passage this morning, Isaiah is actually going to use the metaphor, wait for it, of a tree. Isaiah is going to use the metaphor of a, of a forest to help us better understand the incarnation and the work of God through Jesus. Now, when I talk about trees, of course, you know, if you've been in Tallahassee any length of time, Tallahassee is a tree town, is it not? Um, we have friends that'll come in, they'll drive through our canopy roads, and it's like, this is amazing, never seen anything like it, it's gorgeous, it's it's beautiful, they're amazed at the beauty. Now, if you don't believe me that that trees are the pride and joy of Tallahassee, just try cutting down a live oak in your backyard, all right? Just watch them come for you with the pitches, the pitchforks and, and knives and torches, and that, that's, that's just what happens. Now, imagine, though, flying into Tallahassee after an extended time away, and maybe you've been visiting a part of the country like the Great Plains or Arizona or somewhere else where there's not necessarily a lot of trees, and you're flying back in looking forward to seeing your native Tallahassee and its beauty. And as you're flying in, you look down and you realize that since you've been gone, someone has laid waste to the entire Tallahassee landscape. Every tree in Leon County has been cut down. Every canopy road gone. And I know you tree huggers are getting PTSD right now, but stay with me. And I don't mean just trimmed. I mean mowed down, utterly destroyed. And all that's left is a pile of smoldering, smoking, dead stumps. Now, do you have that picture in your mind? Isaiah is writing to a people who are spiritually in that place. Um, they are hopeless. Their dreams have been dashed. They've been promised a Savior, and one has not appeared. And they are asking, what is God going to do to fix all of this? And that's where we're going to go this morning. So I'm going to invite you to stand. And we're going to be in Isaiah 10 and 11 this morning. I'm going to start in the 10th chapter, verse 33, and read through the 10th verse of chapter 11. So, four oaks, hear the word of God. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what, he see, what his eye sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear. 
But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox." The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Let's pray. Father, it is so tempting to confine our perception of reality to what we can see, to what we can taste, touch, put our hands on, what's right in front of our face. But Lord, we pray that you would help us really see this morning, that you would open our spiritual eyes, that you would open the eyes of our heart, and that we realize apart from you, there is no life. Apart from you, we have no hope. Apart from you, we have no good thing. And so just as you were showing this to the people of Israel, we pray you would show it to us, your people here this morning at Four Oaks. And we ask these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please take your seats. There's a progression across this text. Um, think, think about a symphony and think about the different pieces or movements in a symphony. And this text has four movements, and amazingly, they all start with P. Isn't that interesting how that works? Okay. But here, here's the four P's to help us navigate this text. So number one, we're going to talk about the problem, and then the promise, the person, and finally, the presence. And here, as we jump into the problem, a little historical context will, will help us feel the full weight of this passage. Israel and Judah have a big problem because the bully on the block, which at this point in human history is the Assyrian Empire, it's the biggest, most powerful empire known to man at that time, is bearing down upon the people of God. Now remember, by this point, Israel has been divided into two. It's two kingdoms. You have Israel in the north, and then you have Judah in the south with the capital of Jerusalem. And Isaiah is writing to the folks in the southern kingdom, okay, in Jerusalem. And, and what he's basically issuing is a warning. And he's telling them, don't make an alliance with Assyria, okay? Don't trust in horses. Don't trust in men. Trust in the Lord. Don't trust in Assyria like your cousins to the north have done. And we know from history that the northern kingdom is ultimately destroyed by Assyria, they are exiled. They are scattered all over the ancient Middle East. And in a lot of ways, they were never, ever the same. And so Isaiah is issuing a warning to the Israelites in Judah to tell them, don't do this as well. And so verses 33 and 34 are actually both a warning and a prophecy. And essentially what God says is that he is going to take down Assyria, God himself, he is the one that's going to wield 
the axe. And he is going to lay the great forest of Assyria low. And now listen to, to some of this language in these verses. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty terrifying when you think about it. Think about the, the Lord of hosts with his axe. And it says he's going to lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down. The lofty will be brought low. It's a pretty stark picture, right? And Isaiah 39 tells us that's exactly what ultimately happened to Assyria. Assyria comes up against Jerusalem. Hezekiah um, intercedes for the people. He prays to the Lord, and God ends up delivering Judah. And he sends this great plague and... Um, we don't know exactly what it was, but we know that it ultimately wiped out the Assyrian army. But here's the problem. The problem is that Judah did not learn her lesson. Because 150 years down the line, it's Judah's turn to make an alliance. And this time, Judah makes an alliance with Babylon. And not only is Assyria laid waste by the hand of Babylon, but guess what? so are the Israelites. And what was true and predicted about the Assyrian Empire in verses 33 and 34 has now tragically come true for the people of God. By this point in time, as the Israelites are reading this prophecy, Jerusalem is gone. The temple has been burned to the ground. The people of God have been exiled into a far-off country. What once was an amazingly mighty and great forest, just think about this, only 300 years prior to this, a unified Davidic kingdom under David and Solomon ruled the day. They, were, they literally had built an empire on the forest, from the forest of Lebanon. But here, now, Isaiah describes this great empire as, guess what, a stump. It's just a little wooden stick in the ground that's been lopped off it's gone and the person who's done it and this makes it's very clear in verse 34 is the lord majesty majestic himself in power and might and my wife and i susan were watching the news last night and you've probably seen um, along with us all the devastation of the tornadoes that came across the the midwest the middle part of the country particularly in kentucky and mayfield kentucky I, i've never i mean We've, seen, we've all been subject to devastating pictures of natural disasters, but these are some of the worst I've ever seen. And we need to be praying for that, um, that city. We need to be praying for the Christians and ministries there as they seek to serve their neighbor. But we ourselves, remember, it was just three years ago when Hurricane Michael blew through here. And I remember having conversations with some of you who would, when you would travel west on I-10, you would, you would remark about how how well you could see the very path of the hurricane that had passed through because of what? All of the trees that were down. And, and it, it was remarkable, was it not, that, that these trees were snapped like toothpicks. But if you drive back through there today, you'll still see some of the trees, but you know what you'll mainly see? A bunch of stumps. You'll see piles of timber and wood sort of stacked by the road. Now, you might be able to plant some more trees, absolutely, but those trees, right, are gone. There is no life in them. It doesn't matter how many times you water them. It doesn't matter how much fertilizer you put on them. 
The reality is they're not coming back. And essentially, Isaiah is saying, this is you, Israel. This is you. You were glorious among the nations, your rule, your reign, your power, and now you're just a little stump. And you've been brought low, and you have no prospects in and of yourself for the future. Let me just ask you a question, Four Oaks, or make an observation before we leave this point. We all have stumps in our lives, don't we? We all have stumps of dashed hopes, stumps of shattered dreams, stumps of broken promises, stumps of obliterated relationships or annihilated prospects. And no matter how hard we try, and believe me, I know we've all tried, we just can't resurrect that stump. We can water it, we can fertilize it, we can use all the tricks known to man, but it still ceases to be what it really is. And into the middle of that situation, and into the middle of our lives, God issues a promise. And this is the second movement we see in the text. Look at verse 1. Here's the promise. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, a study was done a number of years ago about the oral traditions of children on playgrounds, interestingly enough. And what the study did was it examined some of the most famous playground games and sayings that were common among kids. And we know a lot of those, right? Hide and seek, tag, ring around the rosy, does this still happen? All right. Dodgeball, the nursery rhymes, you know that whole sort of body of of kid stuff. Well, here's what was interesting about this. They found it wasn't really necessarily the adults who were passing on these games and traditions and sayings. It was kids themselves. They would just kind of get passed from year to year and generation to generation on the playgrounds. It was part of their oral tradition. Well, in Israel, the children had an oral tradition as well. And the, and the people of God had an oral tradition as well. And, and here it was. It was simply this, that a son of David, a king in the line of David, someone from David's loins, from the line of Jesse. And remember, Jesse was David's father. That someone from David's line was going to rule preeminently and eternally. Because remember, by this point in time, as great as the kingdom of David was and Solomon, you could still, at the time, go and see David's tomb in Jerusalem. We know this from the book of Acts, right? And, and, and it, you, 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 could, you could remember his reign, but the reality was, was David was still just a man. But there was a promise. There was an oral tradition. There was this hope that someone was going to rise from the line of David to rule preeminently, eternally, with righteousness and justice. And 2 Samuel 7 tells us where this oral tradition comes from. It comes from the very mouth of God. Listen to 2 Samuel, when your days are fulfilled, and he's talking to David, God is, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Now listen to this. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But obviously, as this oral tradition is being circulated around and 
kids are singing these nursery rhymes and these, and these songs and the Sunday school equivalent and adults are remembering them as well. They're looking out on the line of David and what is it? It's no longer a forest. It's not a great tree. It's just an insignificant stump. You see, the king has been deposed. He has been hauled back to Babylon with a nose ring in his face leading him around like the slave that he was. There are now foreigners living in the land. The temple and the palace have been destroyed. The people are a conquered people. The mighty tree of David has fallen. It looks very hopeless. Now, several weeks ago, I told you guys a story about an event in our lives 20 years ago where our house, that we lived right behind the church here, um, it was one of those 100-year rains and floods and our house flooded, like many of y'all's did. I think it was in 2000, 2001. And I told you about how I had to, to, to solicit the help of one of our elders, John Stewart, to come over and help sort of dig us out of this mess that we were in, and we almost died from the lightning strikes and all that stuff. It was great fun. But there was a part two to that story I didn't share, and you need to know me at this point. All of my stories have a part two, right, and a three and a four. But the, the part two of this story was this. Once we sort of stopped all the leaks and the flood and the water coming in, we had to figure out, how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? And we were recommended to do two things. Number one, we put up gutters. I know it's a novelty, but we've had to put up gutters. But we ended up removing a massive amount of dirt from around our house and lot at the time. I mean, a massive amount. And who better to do this than all the stooge senior high students in my youth group at the time, right? And so they, they had to get their volunteer hours on or whatever. They were helping the poor pastor. And let me just tell you, if we did the things today that youth pastors did 20 years ago, we would all be arrested, okay, completely. So they had this truck out there that didn't have any doors. It, didn't, it wasn't registered, okay? We were piling dirt in this thing, and they were leaving and taking this dirt away, and I do not know where it went at the time. I, I didn't care. I just wanted it out of there. Well, it comes, comes to, to come to find out, I didn't know this, or maybe I knew it but forgot it. Uh, John Stewart was telling me just a little while ago that, see, one of, one of his sons, Jay, was part of that group that was removing the dirt from our lawn. And what they were doing was going up to the Stewart's property and dumping the dirt on the back part of the property. Okay, that's what, that's what they were doing. And here I, and here I was, this is, I was just so thankful to have this dirt away. It was lifeless dirt, and I know you microbiologists don't email me. It's lifeless, you get what I'm saying. Just, just get it out of here. But John says something interesting happens every spring. See, unbeknownst to us, in this lifeless dirt were all of these seeds of these perennial plants that we had planted in our yard. And so every year, around the same time, in this back corner of John's lot, life comes up from this dirt. Like, just like, and, you, and it's always that sort of reaction of where did this come from? How did this happen? This is, this is something supernatural. Well, what Isaiah is describing here, I think, is the spiritual equivalent, right? Out of this deadness, apparent deadness, is going to come life. And verse tells us that this life is going to come with the fruit from the root of Jesse. In other words, as lifeless as this stump appears, Isaiah is saying, God's not done with David's line yet. You see, we think stumps 
contain no life or they can't grow, and we would be correct. Which must mean that for this stump to grow, something supernatural must happen. And I think that's the whole point. The whole point is to get us to read this prophecy and to say, that's impossible. You can't grow a tree from a stump. And it's at that point that Isaiah, that the Lord would say, ah, now you get it. I'm doing a work only I can do. I'm, if you could do it, it wouldn't, be a, it wouldn't be my work. If you could do it, it wouldn't be supernatural. If you could do it, it wouldn't be miraculous. I am going to bring something from nothing. Now, here's the question. What are the equivalents in your life where you're looking for that life? Where, 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 you know, the, 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 think about those stumps in your life. Where, where have you been trusting? Where have you been going? Where have you been looking for the thing that's finally going to fix that? Is it your next job promotion? Is it finally being able to have a child of your own that's going to do it? Maybe it's the right person or the right party elected. Maybe it's going to be the right ruling from the right Supreme Court. Maybe it's going to be eradication of this virus once and for all so that we can get back to our normal lives and our comforts and our freedoms. And I, I don't know where, where you're tempted to place your hope. I don't know where you're tempted to go, but all of us will go somewhere. And this is a reminder that apart from the Lord, there is no ultimate life. Hope lies, church, in none of these things. No one can fit the bill. No person, no institution, no, no political party, no political reality, no set of ingenious sorts of organizational schemes and leadership can lead us as God's people to the place that God is calling us to go. Which is why God says, in the midst of this problem, and I have a promise, and my promise is going to be that I'm going to raise someone up who's utterly unique and different than anyone who has ever lived and who will be able to do for you what you could never do for yourself. Which brings us to the third movement here in verse 2, the person. Now, we know that while by this point in time, you guys, you, you have to know, it's not as if the Davidic line simply died out. The Davidic line failed in spectacular fashion, right? Just read Samuel, just read Kings, just read Chronicles. But what verse 2 makes clear, okay, is that there is going to become someone from David's line, now listen, this is important, who is different, this is going to be someone that the Spirit of the Lord is going to rest upon him. This person is going to be this miraculous branch that's going to come from this stump. And it's very clear in the New Testament, the New Testament writers were in unity in saying that this person, this stump, this branch of the stump, of course, is none other than Jesus. Let me just give you one example where Paul speaks of this in Acts 13. This is Paul speaking, and, and he's speaking to the Jewish leaders, and this is what he says. 
And when he had removed him, he's talking, he's, mentioned, he's talking about Saul there. When he had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Now, here it is again. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. And we have to ask, what qualifies Jesus to be the branch? How is he different than any other spiritual leader? How is he different than any other prophet or man of God or someone who went around doing well and serving and blessing and those sorts of things? What qualifies Jesus not to be just a branch, but to be the branch, but to be the root for all of life, spiritual life as we know it. And I think there's three things here in verses two through four that Isaiah mentions, okay? And this is sort of a trifecta. And let's go back to verse two for a second and follow along here. What distinguishes Jesus? Is in the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Note something here. Not only is Jesus powerful, but he is wise. And not only is he wise, but he is powerful. And let me tell you why that's, why that's important. See, if you know someone who is powerful, who can do great things, who can get things done, but they're not particularly wise, you've got a problem, don't you? How do you trust that person? How do you know that they'll use their power wisely? How do you know that they'll use their power justly? How do, you, how do we know there will be fairness and equity and not a simple service to the self? So if you have power but don't have mercy or don't have this sense of wisdom, then it really calls into a question, can I trust this person? Now, think about this, though. Let's say that you're wise but not powerful. See, you, you can discern problems and solutions and... You can speak words of, of wisdom and truth, but let's say, though, that you have no agency. You have no ability to implement or affect change. We can ask then, to what effect is your wisdom? But see, with Jesus, he has both power and wisdom. He, has the, he, he knows all. He is full of truth. The Spirit of God rests upon him, and he is empowered by the Holy Spirit himself to do what is just and what is right and what is best. We, he is fully trustworthy. In fact, this is what Jesus claims about himself. You know, in Jesus' very first sermon, which passage do you think he reads for his text? Which prophet? You get one guess, okay? All right. Not, not, not Jonah, right? It's, it's Isaiah. So listen to what Jesus says, his very first sermon, and, and he almost gets killed because of this. But he's quoting from Isaiah. Listen to what he says in Luke 4. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, let me say a couple of things about the ministry of Jesus. And here, I really want to encourage us to press into the incarnation this Advent season. And what do I mean by press in? It's very easy to exist in platitudes and ceremonialisms at Advent season, saying things like, Jesus is the reason for the season. And, and that's, it's nothing wrong with that statement. But what does it mean? Like, like when you really get down to it and dig into it, what, what, is, what, what are we saying here? And so I want to really encourage us to drill down into the incarnation in this season. But I want you to consider something that we see here in Luke 4. No one ever asked Jesus a question he couldn't answer. Can you imagine? Towards the end of his ministry, Matthew tells us that after a particular confrontation with the Pharisees, it says, Jesus had astounded them so much with his wisdom, no one dared to ask him any more questions. He was infinitely wise, right? But guys, in his ministry, he was infinitely powerful, Think about the people that Jesus raised from the dead. Think about all the healings. Think about stopping the wind and the waves with his mouth. Think about his his insights into people's hearts. And look at verse 4 here in Isaiah 11. This is an important verse. It says, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Very interesting that Paul quotes that exact verse, Isaiah eleven four 4, in 2 Thessalonians 2, when he's talking about the second coming. Listen to what Paul says. It says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Oh, he's powerful. And one of the things that we want to take from this church in this Advent season is that this person, this branch, This second person of the Trinity, God the Son, God incarnate, is not a person to be trifled with. We we are not here playing sentimental religious games at Christmas time. Jesus has come, absolutely. But here we see a full bore promise that, in fact, Jesus is coming again. And he is coming, and when he comes, every knee will bow. Every, every knee will bow in some form or fashion. But everyone will be in submission to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is coming back to make all things new, which brings us to our last point. And this is the presence of the branch. Now, verses 6 through 8 might be somewhat familiar to you because they are... Um, commonly quoted in talking about the new heavens and the new earth. And so if you look down through here, there, there's some pretty striking statements here. The, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Um, the, the cow and the bear shall graze together. The nursing child shall play with the cobra like the kids did at Four Oaks Family Christmas, right? Um, I mean, there's not really, but it was close. There was, there was llamas and camels and other things. And, and, and sometimes... Our curiosity gets the best of us, and we, we ask questions that aren't relevant, which is, well, Pastor Paul, how, how's that going to be? I mean, my child is going to be playing with a cobra in the new heavens and the new earth, and what's this going to look like? The, the answer is that's not the point. 
That's not the point. The point is that there will be coming a day where there will be absolute security and safety. There is coming a day where there will be absolute peace. There is coming a day where there will be the absolute freedom from danger, from evil, from sin, and most importantly, from death itself. And verse 9 tells us how this is going to happen. Look at verse 9 with us in in Isaiah 11. It says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, and here it is, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now that word for is a really important word in, in the Hebrew. It means because. In other words, there is going to be no more death, no more sin, no more suffering because, and here's what I think Isaiah is saying, one day, church, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth where evil is extinct, where suffering is gone, where security and safety are the rule of the day. And the reason this is going to be possible is that we are all going to be basking in the full-time presence of God. This is important to understand because we may say, well, Pastor Paul, don't we have the presence of God now? Of course we do. Emmanuel, God with us, this is what we celebrate. However, we live in what theologians call the already and the not yet. You see, God has come in Jesus and he has bought us peace with God forgiveness of sins through his death and resurrection. But the final confirmation, when when Jesus will return and eradicate all sin and all death, death, awaits for Christ's second coming. And this is where a lot of people get themselves in in trouble spiritually, is because they begin to expect things before the second coming of Christ that will only happen at the second coming of Christ. And, And many, many a Christian professing Christian, has walked away disillusioned, disheartened, discouraged because of the stumps in their life. And if God really loved me, if God really cared about me, then he would bring life to this stump. And and what Isaiah is reminding us is of the already and the not yet. Christian, God has done for you through Jesus the most important thing that he can do. That he has sent this branch to be broken for you. He has sent this branch to die for you. He has sent this branch who came as a servant to lay his life down for you. And so because of this, because our greatest problem has been taken care of, that we are now cleansed, forgiven through the blood, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can now wait in hope. We can wait in hope. I know some of us, particularly during this Advent season, but Pastor Paul, I know all that. But I just really wish Jesus would come now. Don't you feel that way? Don't you just feel that way sometimes? Why did, Pastor Paul, why does there have to be a not yet? Can't Jesus come and make it all right now? And verse 10 tells us why he hasn't. Look at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be 
glorious. In other words, God has destined for a people who do not yet know him to know him. There, there is still an unfinished work. There, yes, Jesus has come. Yes, he's revealed his glory. But the prophets are pointing us to a time and a day and a season where every crevice of darkness in this life will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Jesus says, I have many in that city, Tallahassee, that belong to me. See, I haven't come back because your neighbor, your friend, your coworker, your family member. See, the banner of King Jesus is not yet flying all over all the parapets and turrets and battlements of people's rebellious hearts. But Jesus says, so I wait. So I tarry. I, I know it's hard. I know that you just look at that stump and wonder, when in the world is God going to bring life? And the reality is, for some of us, for some of those stumps, there won't be life in this life. Not the kind of life that we think about. But there'll be something much greater, something more awesome, something incredibly more joyous, and that is permanent, eternal life and peace. And Isaiah the prophet is pointing us to that place, and he says, don't give up. I'm doing a work. This is why we pray. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, for Oaks, has brought shalom and life to our hearts. He's, if you know Jesus Christ this morning, he has given life to your heartless stump. And he has given you new life in him. And this, indeed, is what we celebrate at Advent. Paul quotes, this will be our last thing, quotes this verse in Romans 15, 12, and this is what he says. And again, and and who is he quoting? You got it. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. For folks, this Advent season, pray that God would give you a heart and a burden for seeing those who don't know him, those who need his miraculous change in their hearts to take root and effect through the power of Jesus Christ. We've been lighting an Advent candle every Sunday. And the Advent candle for this Sunday is the candle of joy. And this reminds us that there is a great joy that accompanies those who once walked in darkness but have now seen a great light. Church, we have been given the ultimate gospel privilege of having the stump revealed to us, the stump broken for you. Jesus Christ, it's in him that we hope and pray.